This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Robert Coleman. He's a professor in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, Rob, this is a great opportunity to speak with you about this trial. And by the way, congratulations on this excellent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Thank you. Uh, this is the VELIA trial. Um, this, uh, this trial, obviously, we, we had uh, uh, data on, uh, on the role of PARP inhibitors in the setting of recurrent ovarian cancer and as maintenance therapy in combination with bevacizumab. Now, this study, the VILIA GOG3005 trial, looked to explore the integration of uh, valaparib uh, with frontline therapy and maintenance in women with high-grade serous carcinoma. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what was the rationale for exploring this option of therapy? Yeah, so this trial was designed at a time uh, when we were evaluating whether or not the combination to, uh, of novel agents to chemotherapy would actually improve uh, factors such as progression-free um, response rate and progression-free survival. And if you think about it, around the time that this trial was designed, you know, we had just come off the heels of GOG-318, which was doing exactly the same thing, uh, which was adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy. It was this trial was obviously was designed very much in the same way. Uh, the arms were mimicking um, almost identically. And um, the thought was, though, uh, we had had data from a, a trial called GOG-380, um, which looked at the role of uh, valiparib in patients who had had up to four prior therapies and had were uh, patients that were characterized by germline uh, documentation. And we showed that there was objective response rates in, in these heavily pretreated patients. So, so we added that information to a, uh, a very large uh, phase one trial that was looking at um, the combination of Pactax-Proplatinum bevacizumab and valiparib in various different dosing schedules and infusion uh, schemes uh, called 9923, GOG9923. And that basically showed that these four drugs could actually be given together in the frontline setting with acceptable toxicity and without compromising the chemotherapy. So um, uh, so what we did is we kind of married those two together in that structure, uh, as I mentioned, with GOG218, with the thought that the combination of the chemotherapy plus this PARP inhibitor, which is the only one that we could actually combine with full-dose chemotherapy, uh, might lead to better outcomes because of the increasing the objective response rates. And, and Rob, um, how many sites and how many countries participated in this trial? Right, so this was a trial that was initially targeted to the GOG population under the NCI contract, and so when um, uh, this moved over to be a company-sponsored trial, uh, it was essentially available to a large um, uh, audience, and we ran this in over 200 sites in 10 countries um, with really, you know, fairly robust participation uh, in several of these centers. And one of the areas that we focused on for regulatory purposes was to have a, uh, a, a nice representative contingency from the Japan, uh, because of they, uh, uh, the, the Japanese uh, regulatory authorities require a, a subpopulation to be evaluated as part of the um, as, as part of the uh, primary investigative trial. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the design of the trial and the, uh, and the primary endpoints? Yeah, so as I mentioned, this was a three-arm trial that had um, uh, a placebo-controlled. So there was a Pactax carboplatinum placebo followed by placebo, and then there was a platinum uh, carboplatinum paclitaxel valiparib followed by placebo maintenance. And then it was Pactax carboplatinum valiparib followed by valiparib maintenance. And the valiparib was given up to a total of three years of exposure starting from cycle one. So 
So um, standard, and what was nice is that we allowed for um, various different approaches of uh, patients that you might see in your normal clinic. So we allowed for primary cell reduction, we allowed for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we allowed for dose-dense paclitaxel versus and for T3 weak paclitaxel. So uh, we had a, a fair amount of flexibility in the uh, types of patients that were going on to the trial, and of course a very large trial. So we had over 1,100 patients, uh, randomized one to one to one. And uh, for the purposes of, of this um, this analysis, we um, focused on the combination throughout ARM versus the placebo arm. And I know that the majority of the patients had uh, stage three disease and underwent uh, primary cytoreductive surgery. Mm -hmm. And one interesting fact that I that I noticed was that approximately 50% of the patients were treated with weekly paclitaxel mm -hmm. versus 50% on an every three week regimen. Uh, and this was the same for the Velaparib throughout and the control group. Mm -hmm. do, do you think this might have impacted the outcomes in any way? So I, I, right now we know that it, it basically s is very consistent um, data throughout. Um, but, you know, at the time that the trial was written, uh, the Japanese GOG trial, the, the 31-3016, uh, was very influential, I think, on treatment patterns, even here in the United States. It was really until uh, later when we had the um, data uh, from the Europeans and from our own trials in the GOG that showed that this dose-dense strategy in the uh, non-Asian population essentially had was very similar to the T3-week. But it was important to allow that um, uh, over the course of this trial because that was at the time, you know, a very favored uh, regimen. Um, fortunately, you know, it was a uh, factor that we uh, considered in the uh, analysis and showed that there was the same robust effect across the, the two schedules of paclitaxel. And can you give us some details regarding information about BRCA mutations and HRV status in the Velaparib throughout versus the control group? Yeah, so the um, uh, this was an interesting uh, component because during the conduct of the trial, we were informed by the, uh, the GSM uh, C, the, the Data Safety Monitoring Committee, that there was an imbalance of BRCA mutation across the three arms. So remember, this was a placebo-controlled randomized trial. So it was just a statistical fluke that there was this, this, um, uh, this imbalance. And so what we did is we pivoted at that point to include BRCA status as a stratification factor. So about 59 or so percent of the patients had been enrolled at that time. And so we then we stopped the study. We allowed for evaluation of BRCA status and then um, reopened the trial with that as a considered stratification factor. So overall, the deleterious mutation rate in the Velaparib throughout was 31%, and it was 27% in the control. So we were able to patch up. And when we broke this down further into looking at the BRCA1 versus BRCA2, it was really mimicking what we see in the general population. So about a 2 to 1, 3 to 1 kind of split between BRCA1 and BRCA2. And, um, and the, um, again, as I mentioned before, there's the, um, somewhat of an enrichment. Uh, we saw that about 23, 20% um, or so of, of the patients uh, throughout the two arms uh, had a germline mutation. And then we added to that about an additional 8% uh, that had uh, the tumor, uh, or the tumor was associated with BRCA, but in a wild type patient, group A1. And what were the, the results in terms of progression-free survival comparing uh, the groups in the study? And I, I'm particularly interested in the results according to the, the, the BRCA and HRV status. Yeah, let me um, – I want to spend just a second on this too because um, this is also a confusing factor, but one that we've started – we're starting to see more and more of in clinical trials. So in these, in these trials where you have such a strong biomarker for efficacy – um, and, 
this case, it's brachystatus and carpi hemorrhage. Very, there are very few biomarkers that are that strong in ovarian cancer. But in ovarian cancer, we know that the best outcome with a carp hemorrhage in a BRCA is a tumor with a BRCA mutation. And the second is with their HRD. And then thirdly, when they're wild type. So what we do with these trials when they see that strong of a relationship is we can do a multiple comparison without actually having to spend any of that analytical power um, if we have success at the, at the, if you subgroup an evaluation. So the trial was written with a, what's called a step-down analysis, and we, and we, and we were primarily interested in the validity of throughout arm versus the control arm, starting with the BRCA patients. And if that was a positive result, then we included the next cohort of patients, which were patients that had tumors that were HRD, so that included the BRCA patients and then the HRD patients. And if that was positive, then we included the entire patient population. So, so they're not separated out by their individual components, but they're separated out by these cohort groups that are prognostically important. BRCA, HRD, and then the all tumor population. And so when we broke that down by that ana analytical plan, which was the primary endpoint of the trial, so PFS being the primary endpoint three times over, we found that the BRCA uh, uh, mutation patient population, that third of the patients, a little over 30 percent of that patient population, had a significant reduction in hazard for progression by about 66 percent, so hazard ratio of 0.44. Uh, it was highly statistically significant, so that's formal hypothesis testing, the median being about 35 months versus 22. And then when we broke that down into the HRD patient population, which includes BRCA, uh, the hazard ratio was 0.57, and uh, the the median uh, being uh, about 32 versus 20.5. And then when we broke that down to the all-comer patient population, which included the BRCA patients and the HRD patients, we had, uh, again, a statistically significant uh, hazard ratio of 0 0.68 with, uh, uh, with an extension in the median uh, from 23.5 months uh, from 17.3 months. So all three of the analyses that were primarily pre-specified were all positive, and so that's why we could do that analysis uh, all the way through. Rob, I, I was uh, interested also in the subgroup analysis, and, and was wondering if the progression-free survival was impacted by any of these, particularly looking at stage of disease, paclitaxel regimen weekly versus every three weeks, mm -hmm. the surgery that they received, the residual disease after primary surgery, or even the residual disease after interval surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were we um, you know uh, three of those factors are stratification variables. So it was um, uh, very nice for us to, to to recapitulate these results all the way through. So as I mentioned in you know previous discussions about subgroup analyses, the uh, you know what we're looking for is whether or not any of these subgroups deviate statistically from the overall results of the trial, and that was of course based on the hazard ratio of the 0.68, and so and it's very tight confidence interval. And what we saw was that you know age and and all the factors you just mentioned were all very much consistent throughout um, uh, the and consistent with the primary uh, endpoint. And the addition of baraparib impact the objective response rate uh, overall. Yeah, so that was a <laughs> we thought this was a great idea, but it happened to be much more difficult than uh, to to assess. Um, so one of the factors that uh, that that you know becomes an issue with uh, objective response is that you have to have something to measure, <laughs> and so so the since the rate of complete growth resection was high, um, these were more difficult to assess. But what we did show was that 
view. Numerically, there was a slightly higher rate of uh, complete, uh, or I mean, uh, yeah, complete and partial response in about 84% in the afflicted throughout and about 74% in the control. But, um, you know, what we think about this, when we go back and look at the, um, you know, because the question comes up was, well, you know, you know, was there, was there any value in adding it during chemotherapy? And we initially, we thought we could do this by progression-free survival. But it turned out that there were so few progressions during the frontline chemotherapy that um, that it wasn't there weren't enough events to even assess that. So we kind of we kind of stepped back a bit and said, you know, objective response seems to be a bit high. Well, we need other factors that might be able to demonstrate if there's value. And so we are looking at some of those others. Um, so for instance, CA125 velocity, like how fast did they normalize? Um, and since there's patients here who had interval surgery, it's also very difficult to kind of um, you know to use these. Uh, but, but yeah, overall we saw this slightly improved um, um, objective response rate. And you had mentioned that there was previous data that uh, demonstrated that it was acceptable to proceed with adding this uh, TARP inhibitor to uh, our current therapy. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about uh, the rate of adverse events in, in the groups that, that you studied? Yeah, so the, um, you know, uh, again, I think that as you would expect, um, the um, adverse events that were linked to the TARP inhibitor velipirib um, were recapitulated in the, in the trial. I think that um, in the velipirib com uh, throughout arm, and we kind of broke it down, the adverse events into those that occurred during chemotherapy and then those that occurred during the maintenance phase. <coughs> and what we saw essentially was that, you know, there were slightly higher rates of anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, things that you would expect that would be additive to chemotherapy in this kind of primary setting. Um, slightly more neutropenia. Fortunately, the high-grade ra rates, the, the complicated rates, um, uh, were relatively low overall, uh, so that was very encouraging. Uh, but there was no doubt that bone marrow toxicity would have, if that is the expected problem that we see when we combine TARP inhibitor with chemotherapy. Um, and if you recall, in, in study 41, which was adding uh, carboplatinum to, uh, excuse me, adding uh, olaprid to carboplatinum paclitaxel, they had to reduce the doses of chemotherapy and the PARP inhibitor to try to even get it through the first six, those um, first six cycles of exposure. Here we were able to give full-dose chemotherapy with um, a slightly reduced dose of the uh, velipirib. Um, I think during the, uh, if you look at the um, adverse events that occur during the maintenance phase, which would be compared to placebo, a very consistent um, profile that we see with all of the PARP inhibitors, with low-grade GI toxicity being most frequent associated with velipirib and not seeing any other um, RSV so GI toxicity was the predominant side effect. Yeah, nausea um, uh, and, um, and vomiting. Um, so I understand you also performed a quality of life assessment. And what were the results of these? Yeah, so quality of life, um, again, very important in a trial like this. Um, we uh, had uh, David Silla, I, I have to give a shout out to him because he's um, been very inter integral into understanding how we interpret these. Um, we, we used the NFOSI 18, which is now commonly used. For looking at disease-related symptoms, and we reported on on the various different models, and this will be one that you'll see a new paper coming out that will detail the multiple different scales that were that were evaluated, and we essentially saw that that the that the uh, differences from baseline were um, slightly different at certain points, mostly during the maintenance phase, um, but uh, but the difference, the actual value of difference, was so small that it we felt that none of it was actually clinically meaningful. So there wasn't really a clinically meaningful detriment uh, on therapy. Okay. And um, 
Yeah, I think that is a good way enough for the United States population and for the international population. Are the PARP inhibitors approved for frontline therapy in conjunction with uh, platinum and Paxil? So currently, none of them are um, uh, are approved. And so this will be the first. Um, if this, uh, you know, is approved by the FDA, it'll be the first one to be approved in combination with chemotherapy. And it again raises the uh, the question: What do you do? Right. So this that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, the z- as much as when we have uh, this discussion about, you know, do I use bevacizumab or not? This is a decision that has to be made early, right? So the trial actually, uh, and this is what distinguishes it from Prima and from Palawan and Solo One, is that decision for therapy is actually made during the chemotherapy. So you have to. This is when it's initiated. So if you're a believer in the data. Um, then you would start this with uh, with your chemotherapy infusion in cycle one, and then continue it on into the into the maintenance phase. If you're a believer in bevacizumab, then you wouldn't start this, and you would be thinking about whether or not you wanted to add PARP later. Again, using the genotype and the um, and the you know potentially HRD status of the tumor to make those decisions uh, nuances nuanced decisions. So Rob, I mean, uh, putting a little bit on the spot here, if you have a patient that actually comes to you and she's ready to start. Uh, frontline chemotherapy, and she says, "You, you were the principal investigator on this trial, and I'm willing to pay for this medication. Um, should I take it? Should I add it to carboplatinum and paclitaxel?" Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, the issue about the payment is, uh, you know, is, is act, you know, it would be really related to whether or not it was approved. Uh, let's just say that the pa- let's just say that the trial is approved within the way that it was designed. So it's all comma patient population. I think that what a lot of people will do, and I myself included, is that we'll probably inform that decision based on the HR st- the uh, HR status. Um, and I do believe that, uh, as you'll see as time goes on, that we'll need to evaluate the role of how HRD is is measured. So we have a couple tests that are approved. We didn't talk about it, but in this trial, we used a different set point as to what was considered deficient. Um, and because of that, the rate of HRD in this patient population in the study was much higher than we've seen in other studies. Um, so, um, but, I, but uh, getting back to your point, I think that what will happen is that germline testing is now universally done, um, or at least recommended to be universally done. Tumor testing is becoming much more the standard of care as well, globally. So we'll have information on both tumor status and, and germline status to make a decision. I think that people will start to migrate or think about migrating to a PARP inhibitor early on just so that they make sure that the patient gets it. I think the question is, is if people look at their trials and they decide, well, you know, if, if it's HRD positive, or HRD, not HRD positive, HRD, and the patient's BRAC, turns out to be BRCA down the road, then I'm just going to add the, you know, PARP inhibitor down the road. But again, it's going to be dependent upon whether or not it's approved in that way. So personally, I like, as I had mentioned, you know, I think other in other podcasts, I tend to want to use the best therapy that I know of at this time because I don't want to, I don't can't predict the future. So, you know, what happens if I didn't start the PARP inhibitor with the chemotherapy and the patient progressed? You know, maybe it wouldn't have mattered, I don't know. But at least I didn't even have the opportunity to give it to them. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I stand by the data. I think that um, it's strongest in the where we would think PARP inhibitors work, and that's the HRD population, both BRCA and HRD positive. And, um, and I think I would offer it to them. So obviously a, a very important trial, um, lots of uh, really impacting data. Uh, what have you learned from doing all of this work, and uh, what additional comments would you have for our audience? 
What have I learned? Boy, um, <laughs> doing global trials is hard. You have to have a, an amazing team, uh, both with the sponsor and with our investigators. So I really applaud the, the uh, steering committee uh, uh, who uh, really played an integral role. And one of the things you never anticipate in a trial when you're doing a, a global trial like this are all these factors that kind of show up along the way. You thought you thought of everything when you wrote the trial, and then all of a sudden, you know, you uh, ran into a thing like this imbalance in BRCA mutation. Like, why would you expect that to even occur, right? So, uh, but, you know, we have, you know, when you have a team of people that are sitting down thinking about how to, pres to preserve the integrity of the trial and the, and the validity and the interpretation of the endpoints, um, you know, you're really able to, uh, you're really able to uh, extend um, uh, these data uh, in a way that are clinically meaningful. And so uh, I learned a lot about that and how teams integrate and, and work together um, uh, to, to, to reach these kinds of outcomes. Um, you know, I think that, <coughs> you know, with, um, with, with all, um, you know, clinical trials, our hope is to provide the best information for our patients because that's what we really are here for. We're trying to move the needle. Um, and so when you think about a trial like this that's essentially missing a fourth arm, right, you know, in power one, missing the third arm, you know, um, we, we uh, you know, I think we have to, uh, when we design these trials is to, you know, to balance, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, what the real question is the at the time and design the trial so that it's not ambiguous. And so learned a lot about that, too. Well, Rob, thank you so, so much for this really great opportunity. I always learn a tremendous amount in speaking with you. Thank you again for all you've done to contribute to gynecological oncology, and we look forward to speaking with you in the future. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.